Welcome to DNA of a Dangerous Church. Get ready for powerful and practical insight on how to let the supernatural power of God loose in your life. Join your host and anointed guests for a crash course of equipping to release God's mighty authority, healing, prophecy, leadership, spiritual warfare, and evangelism. And now, your host, international speaker, author, revivalist, and prophetic voice, Pastor Ren Shuffman. I'm so excited to get on here and to share what God is placing on my heart. For some of you guys that don't know me, um, in 2018, I had a radical encounter with the Lord when I went and spent three weeks with Randy Clark. I'm a senior pastor. I'm a church planter. We're going on a five-year church plant. This September will be our fifth year. And in 2018, the Lord showed up in a really powerful way and signs, wonders, and miracles broke out in our church. And instead of turning us into a mega church, it emptied the church out, like it dumped out the church. Um, and I had to fight through and battle through how to stay on course with what God was doing. I couldn't go back to church as usual. I couldn't go back to God not showing up in church anymore, but it looked like I was running the church off a cliff. But we kept pushing the direction that God called me to, believing that God was going to be faithful. And in that season, we just stopped counting numbers and started counting transformations. So we stopped counting attendance and started counting how people were growing and hearing God's voice and being activated in prophecy and healings that were happening and the power of God moving. And in a season where it looked like everything was kind of falling apart, God was holding it together. But I mean, it was just barely holding together. And when got when COVID finally happened, the Lord called me to go live. He said, just start going live. You know what you're doing. Just start praying over people on social media and doing lives. And when I did that, it absolutely just erupted and exploded. Uh, and, and hundreds of people were just jumping on almost instantly. We were seeing 20, 30 salvations every single night, 20, 30 people getting healed. And in the course of a year uh, of 2020, we saw over a thousand people get totally healed on our live broadcast, thousands of prophetic words that shifted people into their destiny were given on our broadcast and over a thousand said yes to Jesus on our broadcast, all from a local church planter whose church was in decline because of allowing God to pour out miracles. So it's just amazing what God can do with you, even in a season where it looks impossible. And that comes from what David was talking about in cultivating this idea of our personal walk with God. Intercession is a part of that personal relationship with God. You know, it's one thing as a senior pastor, one of the easiest times for me to pray the most articulate is standing on the pulpit. When I'm up on the pulpit, man, I am fire. Like everything is articulate. I got all my rhymes and my rhythms. All my prayers have uh, are, are shiny and polished. They're on point. And there's something that stirs up in me because I'm on display with what I'm doing. But it's the quiet times. It's the secret place. It's those places of intercession, those places where not everyone is gathered around me to listen to me uh, that really showcase my character and my relationship with the Lord. And, and a lot of times I don't think we get the perspective of, of how important intercession is 
in a believer's life, in the prophet's life, in prophetic people's lives. It is a valuable tool. And so I'm going to talk about part of that process because a lot of times what we don't think about is just those conversations we have with God. And, and I remember as I was learning to press in, in the beginning, when, when the Lord was really pouring out, I remember some of those talks I had with the Lord and they weren't always fun talks and they weren't always kind on my end. When we're, when we're watching the power of Holy Spirit show up and everyone in the room is getting wrecked and everyone in the room is getting healed, except the room keeps emptying out. And I have a conversation with the Lord and intercession doesn't normally look like this, but relationship does where I look at the Lord and I had a conversation with him and I said, Lord, I feel like I know how to grow a church better than you. And, and that might sound like a dangerous statement to make, but when you have a good relationship with the Lord, he's not threatened by where you're at, by the struggle of your heart. I know who he's good. So I, I looked at him and I said, Lord, I said, I feel like I know how to grow a church better than you. And instantly he responded back and he said, it depends on your definition of a church. And, and I was humbled and I realized, oh, I know how to grow a crowd, but you know how to grow a group of believers that will follow you and will pick up their cross and chase after you. I get it, Lord. We'll keep going this direction. And so what it became was it became about equipping the saints. And so what God did through me in that season was to get my heart and my mind focused in a different direction, to focus on the things that actually shift the earth towards heaven, not just shift a building and fill it up or shift a ministry platform or shift my fame or shift my success or shift how big my house is or my car. That shifting began to take place in my life where it became from a deep place of intercession, a deep place where I began to hunger and thirst after real change in my church, in my city, in my state, in, in, the, in the world. And so as my shifting took place in my own mind, as I began to shift and have a hunger to see the world touched by the Lord, the Lord began to raise me up into someone that could speak to the world. That's, that's what happened. I had a hunger to see the world impacted for Jesus. So Jesus began to give me a world. Some of you guys, you want to be prophets. You're, you're like, oh, Lord, use me to be a prophet. But you're still kind of concerned with your world, not the world. You're still concerned with your platform and not getting the gospel into the four corners of the earth. And when your heart is for others, God can start to use you. He can start to grow you when it's not about you. And intercession is one of those things that take the focus off yourself and put it on others. See, the two greatest commandments are this, love God and love others. Real simple. Love God and love others. When you are interceding for somebody else, you are loving others. You are putting someone else before you. And that becomes vital to stepping into the fulfillment of what you are called to do. There's two things about what you are called to do. You, what you are called to do is never about you. It will always be about loving someone else. That's just the reality. And what you are called to do is never done alone. If if the calling on your life can be accomplished by yourself, that is not a God calling. God will always have you partner with other people. What you are called to do will always require you to stretch beyond your limitation and require you to grab other people and come into kingdom relationship, come into kingdom unity with them. I promise you, if you can do it by yourself, you are not hearing God's voice over your calling for your life. God wants us to be united to each other. John chapter 17, verse 21, fathers, you and I are in, are, are in each other. Let them also be in each other so that the world will know that I am the sent one.
God always wants us partnering and working together in order to accomplish the, the will of God. And so you have to, you have to think outside of that. And in order to bring in other people into your ministry, it can't just be about you. It's got to be about helping others find their, uh, their destiny, their purpose. And so intercession is one of those things that takes you outside of yourself and gets you to focus on other people and where they're at when you're interceding for someone. So let me back up for some of you guys that might not know uh, what intercession really means for some of those out there. Very, very quickly, the Hebrew word for intercession is, is para, okay? Para, I think I'm saying that right. And while it means to stand in the gap, it also means the word attack. It actually means it's actually a warfare terminology to attack. And so intercession is not just praying for someone else's behalf. A lot of times intercession is done alone in your quiet time, you know, when no one else is around that, that doesn't necessarily have to happen to intercede for somebody, but it is a weapon of our warfare. And I think a lot of times we don't carry all the weapons of our warfare. We think because we got the Ephesians six armor of God on and well, we got a sword. So that's the extent of our weapons and the, the word of God which is the sword, there are so many facets to the weapons that we carry that are necessary for us to move into that. And intercession is definitely one of those tools, one of those weapons that we carry. Uh, and there is a difference between normal intercession and prophetic intercession and the way a prophet might intercede. There are some variances and nuances there that we're going to dig into just here for a few minutes. Um, so last time I was on here, I, I, I talked about the fact that prophecy is the greatest gift, that the Bible tells us that prophecy is the greatest gift. And I talked about why that is. The Lord spoke the earth into existence with his prophetic decree. He spoke and it became. So that means that everything around you, the, the microphone I'm speaking on right now, the camera that you're seeing right now, your room you're sitting in is all held together molecularly by the word of God, which is the prophetic decree. So that means prophecy is what is holding everything around you together. So of course, if prophecy is what is holding everything, then of course, it's the gift of prophecy that moves everything. Of course, it's the greatest gift. It's how the world was created. So once we understand that, we can move into the realm of releasing prophetic intercession, intercession, our prophetic decree at a greater level than we've ever had it. Okay, so that's the basis. You can go back and listen to some of my other teaching on that if you want more on prophecy being the greatest gift there. All right. And so you see this actually demonstrated. Let me let me go a little further. You see this actually demonstrated in, in the word of God. You, you have Adam and Eve who are created on the earth. God forms them out of the dust of the earth. So he forms them and breathes in them. He doesn't speak them into existence, but he does form them out of the dust of the earth that was spoken into existence. So at the root of it all, it's still the prophetic voice of God that has created everything. And so we see what happens when God gives them an assignment. He gives them a command. The first thing he says to him is go be fruitful, multiply, but he tells them to take dominion over the earth. So God creates man. He hands them everything. It's a hundred degrees out. We got a little bit of uh, audio. So if somebody can mute their mic. Um, so we have this moment where God gives Adam the command to go and subdue the earth. He gives him dominion over the earth. He gives him the keys to the kingdom. This is yours. I want you to take dominion over it. So a lot of you guys are familiar with, with the theology of, uh, of uh, 
name it and claim it, right? We've heard that before, that term, name it and claim it. Here's what I want to suggest to you. And I'm not getting into the theology. I'm just using a cute name, name it and claim it. And many people subscribe to that. Many people are against that. But I want to say this. I think maybe we got a little backwards, that it's not completely wrong, but maybe we got the, the topic backwards. I want to say this. The scriptures are clear. It's actually not name it, claim it. It's claim it, name it. Okay, and let me show you this right here in Genesis, right in the beginning. The first thing that Adam does, his first assignment, his first actual physical task of work is that God says, I've given you dominion over the earth, go and subdue it. Well, what is Adam's first command to go do? What is his assignment, I should say, to go do? Go name the animals. Here, I'm going to put the animals in front of you. I want you to name all the animals. I've given you dominion over it. You have claimed it. Now go and name it now that it belongs to you. That which belongs to you, you have the authority to name. And we see this actually throughout the whole Bible is that we take authority over something once we have it, once we've owned it, we're able to go and name it. God does this over and over and over in the Bible. He gets a hold of Jacob and he says, no longer will your name be Jacob, but now I'm going to call you Israel. He get, he makes a covenant with Abram and he says, no longer will I call your name Abram, but I'll call you Abraham. Sarah, I become Sarah. God is constantly claiming what is his coming into covenant relationship with, and then naming it. And in fact, up until just recently, in the last century or two, we stopped giving people Christian names. But for all of, of Christendom, we have constantly, when someone came to Christ, they were given a new name. Peter, you know, became the rock, right? Uh, Simon became Peter. And so we see all of these moments where new names, where God gives names to that which he has claimed. And so there's a power that comes from that of saying, of taking authority over something and, and putting a name on it and declaring it. Okay. And that becomes important, but we see this act that Adam does. It's a prophetic act. God has him speaking out of his mouth and taking authority and subduing the earth. He's not subduing the earth by warring against it. He's not waging war to subdue the earth. He's simply speaking. He's, he's not, he's not attacking. He's not being abusive. He's not doing any of those things one would think of to claim and subdue the earth. He is simply speaking and naming and giving identity to the things of the earth. Can you believe that? He's giving identity to the things of the earth. And by doing that, he's taking authority. That's powerful. So we have these two ideas of, of intercession. You have uh, normal intercession. You have prophetic intercession. And, and I know a lot of people that know about intercession will be familiar with, with uh, some of these things, okay? So uh, I'm just going to hit them really quick. But intercession, if you come to me and you say, hey, man, I've been struggling. I got some sickness in my body, or we've been going through a crisis uh, with my family. Can you please just pray for me? When I pray for you and pray for your family, David, I'm praying for your family, and I'm declaring that God's blessing you and God's pouring out on you. Um, I'm interceding for you because I'm interceding out of the knowledge that's been given to me by man. So that is, that is intercession. Prophetic intercession, kind of in the basics of it, it goes to a different level in the beginning. The, that beginning level is where I'm not getting information from you. I'm getting information from God, where God begins to speak and reveal things to me to pray for where I don't have to go to you and say, well, what's the request? What's the, what do I need to pray for? But rather than that, I can simply go to God and, the, and God can reveal mysteries to me about you that I can pray for. And in that prayer, 
I am using my prophetic voice, prophetic intercession. I am using the prophetic decree and power that God gave me back at the garden. And I am declaring and decreeing and speaking to mountains and telling them to move. And that is the power of the prophetic intercessor. Okay. The prophetic intercessor can do that. Not every intercessor is a prophet, but I believe that every prophet can intercede at a prophetic level. And that becomes very important because when you're raised up in the, let's say the office of a prophet, an office of a prophet many times will speak into nations, will speak into seasons of the world, will speak into specific regions. They'll have words for that. Well, the Lord is giving them prophetic insight to what's happening in the supernatural or maybe what's coming even in the natural. And when he's, when the Lord is doing that, he's not only asking the prophets to, to prophesy that, to, to make it known, um, but it's also a call for action and for prayer. Sometimes it's a call to, to take action, to step up. Other times it's a call for prayer. Many times it's both. So we're asked to step in and start interceding in prayer. So uh, the, that prophetic word that comes to the prophets is necessary so the church and the prophet can understand better how to prophesy, how to uh, decree and intercede into the life of that word that's been given. Okay, and so sometimes I don't think we fully understand the weight of our warfare, the weight of the power of the of the prophetic decree, the weight of that prophetic intercession. So a lot of times what we do is, is we think uh, that we are constantly at war with the enemy, which I think we are. I think we're constantly at war with the enemy. But what we end up doing is we end up thinking that the war that we're having with the enemy is him always attacking us. Um, I, I don't want to tell some of you guys this, but the truth is, is that the enemy is attacking you a whole lot less than you actually think he is. The truth is, if you're growing in your walk and you're pressing forward into your walk, many times you're the instigator. Many times you're the one crossing into enemy territory. You don't claim a promise without a battle. I promise you this. Every promise that God has for you is in a territory where there are giants. You are always having to cross over into enemy territory to claim that which is yours. Why? Because if you have not claimed it, then the enemy has hold of it. He is the God of this earth. He's the one that was given the keys uh, when man fell from grace. And our job as believers to go and take the authority away from him, go and take the keys back. It is within our power. It's within our prophetic decree to do so. We can go and take those, those places back, but we have to go and take back with, with what he took previously. And so every promise you have laid up for you usually will include a battle of some sort. And so what we'll do is, is, is instead of, uh, speaking or instead of fighting, we'll complain. Well, God, every time I try to do anything for you, I, I get attacked. No, no. Anytime you try to do something for God, you are waging war. You are declaring war on the enemy and you're going after the enemy. Like we got to get that through our heads that we're lions, that we're lions and we're called to go and win the promise, to go and battle for the promise. That's why the word intercession, para, means attack. Let's make so when you start interceding for someone, you are coming against that which is coming against them. You are attacking the problem, you are going after the enemy. So, there's a powerful moment where we are going after the enemy, amen. So, I hope that that's helpful so far. So, let, let, let's dig into that just a little bit. Ephesians chapter 6, the full armor of God, verse 17 says, And take the helmet of salvation. <laughs> 
and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So I want to, I want to give you this analogy. Many times what we do is we get into arguments. Uh, we get into arguments with, let's say that the, I'm going to give you a left and a right here. Uh, we, we got on the left-hand side, you got the word people on the right-hand side, you got the spirit people, you got the people that's like, it's all about the rhema word. It's, and you got the other ones that are all about the logos word, rhema being the spoken word of God, logos being the written word of God. You know, I just want to hear what heaven has to say. So we're, we're caught up in every prophetic thing that's coming out of heaven. And then on the other side, we're all about the word of God and, and, and we just need the word. We don't need any prophecy. We just need the word. We got the book. We don't need any of that. And so we get like kind of these two camps on either side and we got, we get kind of unbalanced. But the word of God says that we cannot have the sword of the uh, the sword without the spirit. We cannot have the word without the spirit. It's called the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Here's what's interesting. When he's talking about the sword of the spirit, we're talking about a two-edged sword. That's what the word of God tells us. It's a two-edged sword piercing through bone and marrow. The two-edged sword, if you guys don't know a lot about the history of the two-edged sword, it was invented by Rome. Rome invented the two-edged sword. Up until that point, you just had really had one-edged swords, samurai swords or buccaneers, or, you know, there's all kinds of different examples of one-edged swords in the world. When Rome invented the two-edged sword, it became the most lethal and dangerous close quarter combat weapon that had ever been invented in the history of mankind. It was the most dangerous tool in a well-trained soldier's hands. It became the dominant sword of the world. And with it, Rome became a dominant force with this two-edged sword. There were massive advantages. It saved milliseconds in slicing because you could cut both ways without having to turn the sword around. So you were able to fight more efficiently. It came out. It didn't get stuck. There were so many advantages to the double-edged sword, the two-edged sword that gave Rome an advantage over every other army in the world. And so what ends up happening is, is we in, in the church, we become divided on the sword of God, but the word is clear. It's the sword of the spirit, which makes one edge, which is the word of God, the word and the spirit form two edges of this sword. And if you remove one and only leave one, you are back to a one-edged sword, which is not the most dominant weapon in the world. So when Paul was writing this, it's the sword of the spirit. When he was talking about it, he was saying the word of God, the spirit of God, and the revelation of his word is the most dominant weapon that's ever been made in the history of mankind, even more so than the Roman sword. And so this is what Paul was trying to get across. And I'm going to give you an example of this, of what it's like to fight with a one-edged sword versus the two-edged sword. Um, and, and, many, and the one-edged sword being the word of God. So many people have a form of godliness, but deny the power within. And what that means is, is that they, they know the word, but the word is not alive. It's not, it doesn't have power. It doesn't actually transform. It doesn't actually heal. It doesn't actually speak. It's just the word. It's just a bunch. It's just a dusty old archaeological dig. They read the word of God so they can archaeologically dig and find out who this God that used to move on the earth, that used to speak was. That's how they treat the word of God. If, if God is not, if his word is not coming alive and doing the things it says in the word that it's doing, then it's just an archaeological book. It, then we are learning about a dead God. 
We're learning about a dead religion and that's not the case. So it has to be the word and the spirit together. And so we see this example of where the word was used as a one-edged sword. And the best example of that is when Satan and Jesus have a little showdown in the desert. So Satan and Jesus have the showdown. Jesus has just been baptized. The Holy Spirit has come on to him. He's been commissioned into his calling. He's moving forward. But God says, I lead him into the desert. I want you guys to catch that. I need you guys to catch this. It doesn't say that Satan came and found him. Remember what I said before, many times we're the ones that go and start the assault. Jesus has now been empowered and leveled up. He's been receiving a promise. He's received the Holy Spirit as promised. And it says, God led him into the desert to be tempted. That's, that's the word. And so he gets led into the desert and there Satan is. And when Satan and him come at each other, what do they use as the weapon of their warfare? What's the weapon of choice? It's the word of God. Both of them are using the word of God. In fact, Satan is using the word of God um, accurately. Yeah, he's twisting it, it's, it's, its intention, but he's, he's not wrong in what he's saying. He's saying, throw yourself off this cliff. Go ahead. The word says his angels will take charge over you. That's not untrue. There was no untruth in what he was saying. Okay. But the difference with Satan and Jesus, and we'll get into the truth of that in a second, because I think this is going to be really revolutionary for some of you. The difference with Satan and Jesus is that Satan does not have the Holy Spirit. He does not have the spirit of God residing on him to give him a second edge. He is only operating out of a one-edged sword. And so he comes at Jesus with a single sword and Jesus comes back with the two-edged sword, the word and the spirit of God. And he's able to defeat the enemy easily. And so in our life, many times we will quote scripture and we will even quote it accurately, but we do not have any authority. We do not walk with the gifts of God pouring out of our life. We are not empowered by Holy Spirit. We are not leaning in and listening to the Spirit of God. And so the difference with the intercessor versus the prophetic intercessor is that the intercessor is listening to God, uh, or excuse me, the intercessor is, is praying prayers from the word of God. And the prophetic intercessor is listening to God's voice right now, lining up with the word of God. And so there's power in that. And I'll come back to the desert in a moment, but I wanna prove that case. So uh, intercessor, intercessory prayer has the power to actually shift cities and shift nations. And we know that's true because I'm a science guy, okay? Um, I, I, I'm a spirit guy. I'm prophetic. I flow in healing, but I love science. When I was in college, I wanted to go to school to be a marine biologist. I love science. And so as I was looking into intercessory prayer, I actually found four case studies, scientific case studies about intercessory prayer. Three of them were studies that were done over a cardiologist wing where people had heart surgery done. Two of these studies, they were all kind of identical, but there's one difference between one of the studies and the other two. But let me just lay out the foundation. There'd be a group that was praying for the people recovering from heart surgery, interceding for them. They were given their information, told a little bit about them and allowed to intercede. The people, some of them were prayed for, uh, you know, like a third were prayed for, a third were not prayed for, and, and, uh, and, and another third were told they're being prayed for, okay? And so you have these different groups. One third was prayed for, but not told. One uh, was not prayed for, but was told they were, and another one was told they were being prayed for. So they have these three different groups, and, and each study is slightly different, but that's kind of the, the context. I don't need to get into the nitty-gritty of how many. But what happened is, is that in one of the studies that was done, 
they prayed for these people and then they, they checked the results of what happened after intercessory prayer on how the recovery took place for these people with uh, heart surgery. And in one study, they found zero significant difference with intercessory prayer. That's right. You thought I was going to say something positive. I'm not. They found no difference in intercessory prayer, people that were prayed for. In fact, the ones that knew they were being prayed for actually had a worse result. They had a worse result than the ones that didn't even know they were being prayed for. And there was no difference in the intercessory prayer than without prayer at all. And I was like, Lord, got to help me out here. This is not, this is not really good. So I looked into the other two cases and I said, and when I looked into the other two cases, I found that there was a significant difference. The other two for the heart had massive differences, 12 to 20% uh, better rates of recovery, less need for antibiotics, septus, uh, uh, side effects, death, another heart attack, seizures, all of that dramatically reduced way beyond the, the art margin of error and into the realm of substantial improvement. But this one study, there was no improvement and maybe even worse in one case. So what was the difference between the two studies? So I said, well, I got to know what the difference is between these two studies. Cause one's saying intercessory prayer has the power to, to, to really help and aid. And the other one, and, and when I say intercessory prayer, I mean, nobody was going to the hospital and laying hands on them. These people were just informed. There are people praying for you. And so what we have happened is when I read these two studies, I see the remarkable difference. And this is the difference between intercessory prayer and prophetic intercession. The ones where it had zero impact in that particular study versus the other two, they were given a piece of paper that told them what they are to pray every day for those people. They were given a written out prayer that was a repeat and a mantra that they were supposed to pray over those people. There was, they wanted everything to be um, uniform for, for a scientific study. We needed all uniform. Everyone needs to be praying the same thing. So the people that are being prayed for versus the ones that know it or don't know it, they're all getting the same prayer and we'll check it. So when they were praying a repetitious prayer that did not come out of Holy Spirit, there was no impact having a form of godliness, but denying the, the power within. Isn't that what the word tells us about God does not like our repetitious prayers? There was no impact, but on the other two, they were just told pray as God is leaving you, is leading you. Hallelujah. So we have these two studies that are done. Now there's this third scientific study where they actually, where church began to pray over their city. And as they began to pray, they told the city that they're going to pray. The chief of police said there's going to be no impact to crime. The only way to have an impact of crime, and he laid out his you know, 10-point plan of, of crime reduction and how the police are going to do it. And he had no faith whatsoever that this intercessory prayer was going to help reduce crime. But what happened was, is as this church began to pray and intercede for the city, they saw a marketable reduction in crime across every avenue. I don't have uh, all the statistics up, but, but between 12% and 21% in so many categories, murder, homicides, shootings, robbery, <clears throat> um, uh, domestic abuse, like every single stat from around 
most of them around 12% to around 23% in that bracket. A lot of them up in the 20% reduction in crime. I, rape dropped by something like 12 or 13%. It was an, a remarkable increase in what happened. And just to put that in perspective, murder dropped by over 20%. That means that for every five people that should have died, that intercessory prayer saved one person. Saved one person. Somebody is alive because they began to pray. And it was such a big number that it was way beyond the margin of error that it could not be ignored scientifically. That is the power of, pro of intercession, but even more so, it's the power of prophetic intercession. When we just pray out of a repetition or a memorized prayer, there is no scientific evidence that prophetic intercession, or excuse me, intercession has any any advantage. But when we pray out of the spirit, we put that second edge on the sword. We put that marketable increase on the sword. We get the advantage of heaven on earth. That's what happens when we begin to listen to the voice of God and prophesy and speak and decree the things that God has put out in us, whether we are doing it over the person where they can hear it or doing it in the secret place where nobody knows we're doing it. There, it doesn't matter if anybody knows you've been praying. It doesn't matter if anybody hears the prophetic word that you heard. The world doesn't get your message that you heard a voice from God. You can change and shift the world around you by the power of your prophetic decree and the power of your intercession. If you don't have a platform and you can't let people know, then intercede. God is raising up prophets right now. There are hidden ones all over. God is raising up prophetic voices. He's raising up prophets in the office. He's raising up powerful prayer warriors. But if you are not willing to get in your quiet place and pray and see things shift, why would God put you in a public place to do it? We need to be people that pray and pour out. Okay, so let me go back to the desert for a second. Let me hit the desert for a second and we're going to wind this down. So we have the desert here. And I, and I said, I'd come back to this. Why Satan uh, is fighting with this one-edged sword. He doesn't have the spirit of God and he's rallying against Jesus who has both the spirit and the word. And so Satan is at a disadvantage already just in that realm. But I want you to understand something is that Satan doesn't have any authority over you except that which you give him. It is the authority that you give him. See, Satan is trying to get Jesus on team Satan. He, he's not trying to derail the plan necessarily. He's not trying to say, Jesus, don't come and be a savior. Don't come and take the kingdoms of the earth. See, Satan doesn't always need to stop your destiny. What he needs to do is get your destiny to line up for his advantage. Let me give you, explain this to you. You, you have a moment in the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Eden, where Satan comes in and says, God doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to eat of this tree. And he gets them to partake of this tree. And he gets them to give authority to him. See, Satan doesn't have any authority except that which you give him. And, and here's the truth. Satan doesn't have a prophetic decree. So what does he try to do? He tries to lie to you and get you in agreement. The Bible says we're two or more gathered and agree upon anything. Well, Satan wants you to come into agreement with him. He has a prophetic decree. And what happens is, is Satan will come in and scare you and he will put fear on you. And fear is faith in Satan's prophetic decree. That's what fear is. It is faith manifest in Satan's prophetic decree. If he says, oh, you're going to die and you begin to have fear on you, you are adding faith 
to Satan's prophetic decree over you. And he's beginning to take the power of your prophetic decree and use it for his advantage. And that's what Satan does. And that's actually what we see kind of happening here in, in the garden. And what it is, is that he doesn't necessarily have to steal your voice. He doesn't have to kill you. He just needs your voice to line up with him. He needs your voice to line up with his plan. If he can get your power into his camp, then he can use it for his advantage. He's looking to use you as a tool. And, and here's one of the biggest ways that he does this timing. Okay. This is going to be like a, a huge bomb for a lot of you guys. It's all about timing. Did you know that if God gives you a promise and you tried to claim it in your timing, and it's outside of God's timing that the enemy can grab a hold of that promise. Did you know that? The enemy can grab a hold of the promise that you have and derail your destiny and derail your promise by getting you simply to walk in that promise in your timing or in Satan's timing and not God's timing. We see, we see it all throughout the Bible, but let me give you an example that maybe you've never seen before. The Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden. We got some, some people that are unmuted. If you guys can mute, if you have noise. Um, well, we have the Garden of Eden. And you have Satan come and say, God doesn't want you to be like him, knowing good and evil. Do, let me ask you this. Do you really think a good father would stick a tree right in the center of the garden as a temptation and a constant thorn in their side and just taunt them over and over again and say, don't ever touch it. And, that, and I'm keeping this from you. Like a lot of that, when you think about it, you're like, come on, really? Like you, like, like you're ever going to go to your five-year-old kid and put a candy bar sitting with them in their room, walk out of the room, <laughs> walk out of the room and say, don't touch that candy bar and leave it there for weeks and weeks and weeks and not expect that at some point that's too much for them. Like, come on. So, so something else is going on here, I believe. Okay. And, and maybe you can disagree with me, but I think we're going to unlock something. I think this, I think that God's intention was never that Adam and Eve should never eat of the knowledge of good and evil, that this was a forbidden thing forever. I believe that this was a maturity thing, that it was not God's timing yet for them to eat of this tree. They were brand new. They were still maturing and being trained up. God's coming down in the cool of the evening. He's walking with them daily, training them, relational, pouring into this new creation that he's made. And he says, don't take of this tree. I think they weren't ready. They hadn't matured up to it yet. Let me give you the best example. If you have a baby, you don't feed that baby a steak, do you? You don't give a baby a steak, you give him milk because that's what he can handle. But as that baby grows and matures, there will come a time where you say, okay, your system is ready to handle the steak now. You are matured enough to handle the steak. I believe that God's intention was always to eventually give Adam and Eve the access to that tree. They were always supposed to have that, but they needed to carry maturity so that they could use good and evil. They could know the knowledge of good and evil and use it correctly. Now, why do I think that? Am I just saying that out of left field? No. The word of God backs me up on this. First Kings. Solomon has found favor in the Lord. And Solomon asks, or excuse me, the Lord says, what do you want from me, Solomon? And Solomon's one ask from the Lord is this. Give me wisdom. This is what Solomon asks for. Give me wisdom that I might be able to discern between good and evil. Okay, I'm paraphrasing that slightly, but... Give me wisdom to discern between good and evil. That's literally says the ability to discern between good and evil, the wisdom to discern. 
So here it is, the very thing that makes man fall into sin, Solomon's asking God for. He is asking God to give him discernment between good and evil. And what does God do? God gives it to him. What? But, but God didn't want us to have good and evil. Here he is giving it to Solomon. Unless the intention of God was never that he never wanted us to have it, but rather he wanted us to have it in the right timing. It wasn't time yet. That wasn't released to us yet. It had not come into harvest season for mankind yet. And mankind took their own will and decided, I'm going to have that now. It's mine now. And even though I'm not mature and I cannot handle it. So what happens is the knowledge of good and evil comes into the world before it is mature and able to be handled by mankind. And they wreak havoc on the earth with it because they do not know what to do with that. You do not hand an eight-year-old a, mach a machete or a machine gun. You just don't. But a soldier can handle a machine gun and not hurt anybody. You do not hand someone a weapon they are not ready for. And I believe God was waiting till they were ready. And so what happens in the garden or what happens in the desert, what happens many times in our walk is that Satan doesn't need to actually steal your promise or kill you. All he needs to do is get you to use your promise in, in his timing. He needs you to derail the timing of God so that you use it in your will and not his. You use it for your plan and not his. And when you do that, he derails the promise. Because you are walking, you are not only given a promise, but you are giving a time frame. God will give you the promise when it has met maturity, when it has seasoned, lest it be sour on the vine. And so when it has come to harvest, he will give it to you. But what the enemy does is sometimes he will learn about the, the promise that's been given to you, the prophetic decree on your life. And he will try to get you to claim it before you are supposed to and wreak havoc and destroy things in your life. So it is necessary for us to very closely listen to Holy Spirit and intercede on the promises that God has given us. If God has given you a promise, you need to intercede in that promise to walk in it in its fullness. Come on, that's a, that's a good word right now. Okay. And you need to understand that intercession is the place where we incubate promises. Intercession is the place where we incubate revival. All revival was incubated in intercession. Okay. And I know we think of little old ladies praying in, in their prayer closet. That's our version of intercession, but that it's war. It's war. But every revival that you study in history, you will always see that there was somebody, some group of people, a couple of people that were meeting and praying and believing and seeding the atmosphere for revival. They were pouring in and believing God and crying out for revival and interceding for their nation, interceding for their region, interceding for their state, their city. They were interceding and revival began to root and revival began to pour out. It was birthed out of a prophetic declaration of people that interceded and released the word of God in secret places unknown. That is the power of that two-edged sword of speaking and decreeing the prophet decree, decreeing out of your mouth that that which is not will be and believing and seeding the atmosphere for revival that is not believing and seeding that in God's time. Now, here's what happened. Revival didn't break out when they planned the revival. You know, it's, it's funny because I just finished a revival weekend. We planned a revival weekend. We put it on the calendar, revival weekend. Rarely does God burst out a revival that sweeps a, 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 a town, a city, a nation by our calendar. So we put it on the calendar, but it's in God's timing. And it's so imperative that when we pray, we don't lose heart in well-doing. We don't lose uh, faith in well-doing. 
We don't lose strength in well-doing. We keep doing well. We keep praying and interceding, believing that if God gave us a word to intercede for, that in his timing, he will release it on the earth when it has come to maturity and come to harvest. We are in that season right now. This is the third great awakening. We're in it right now. And just to put a, a pin in that, we are definitely in the third great awakening. You know, I had um, uh, Jesse Green, who started Saturate OC, which eventually led to Let Us Worship with Sean Foyt. I had her on my broadcast recently because the Lord gave me a word that revivals were going to break out in California. And I released that in March, well before the revivals broke out. And I released that word sitting on a beach in California and the revivals broke out on a beach in California. And so I sat down and talked to Jesse Green about that. And now she's going around releasing revival. Well, she went to Kentucky to do a revival this, this uh, last week. And as she was concluding the revival, the Red River Barn, I think it's called the Red River Barn House, is the location where the Second Great Awakening was actually birthed, where it began in America. Okay, in 1799 is when that birthed Ford at the Red River Barn House. She was invited to do a meeting there on Friday at the Red River Barn House. They invited her in, said, you know what, continue revival, but do it over here at the birthplace of the Second Great Awakening. I just want to show this to you. The second great awakening happened 222 years ago, 222 years ago. We know that God is doing something for all my, my people out there that know numerology and understand all that kind of stuff. You know how significant that is. I won't get into that for time's sake, but 222 years ago, and now here it is, they're having revival meetings again in the same location, the second great awakening happened, and it was all prophesied but it did not come quickly. It has been being prayed for and interceded for, and people are crying out for revival. And now we're beginning to see the manifestation of those prophetic intercessions. Do not rush God in what he has promised you. Wait on God's timing, lest you give that promise over to the enemy to corrupt. Do not allow the corruption of your own flesh, but let it, rather let the spirit lead you. And let the spirit dictate how you go. It is so imperative that as you, as, as we prophesy, especially the prophets, there's so many prophets, man, that this has been a hard season for prophets. And I'll conclude with just this is the last thing I want to say is the prophets have had such a hard time because they've released all these words. And sometimes they get kind of desperate to see them come to pass in their time so that they can show that they, you know, I am prophetic because we live in a fast food world where everything is digested instantly. You know, you give a word, it better come to pass right now because everything's a 24 hour cycle. You can go check it out. It's not, nothing's long and drawn out. And so to, to prophesy something that takes a season to come to pass is really, really difficult. And so it puts a lot of pressure and stress on prophetic voices. And my encouragement to you is if you're, if you're prophetic, like just let the Lord season things and grow them and let, let him saturate and soak those things. Don't be in such a rush because remember something, a mushroom grows up in six hours, but an oak tree takes 60 years. Which one do you want to be, the mushy mushroom or the mighty oak tree? Let God's word grow to maturity, lest it have no power to actually shift and change what God intended for it to do. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you for listening to DNA of a Dangerous Church. Be sure to subscribe to the show on CharismaPodcastNetwork.com or iTunes, Spotify, Google, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Follow Pastor Ren Shuffman on social media and join our mailing list for exclusive bonus training content at www 
www.ffc.church/dangerous.